Father, we thank you for this vision that you've John. We thank you for what it will teach us about you and therefore about ourselves. And we ask, please, this morning that you would uh, truly change us, shape us, mould us, turn us right around wherever it's needed, that we might uh, dedicate our lives not to the pursuit of any worldly pleasure, but instead to the pursuit of your praise and your glory and your honour. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most moments of our lives are spent making decisions. Uh, occasionally there's some big decisions. There's those kind of moments that you have to stop and think hard. Uh, do I quit my job? Do I marry that one person? Do I have my decaf coffee instant or plunger? Right? These are the big decisions in life that you have to make. But even outside of those big moments where we stop to reflect, our lives are just constant decisions, moment by moment by moment. What do I eat? What do I drink? What do I wear? Uh, who should I talk to? What will I say when we talk? Should I listen? Probably not. Uh, what should I read? What should I listen? What should I watch? We're just constantly making... You're, you're having to make a decision right now, whether you realise it or not. Do I sit and keep listening to this guy? Do I get up and walk out? Right? It's just subconscious decisions that we are making all the time. Few of us will ever stop and think. We will rarely evaluate, how is it that I'm going to make good decisions? How is it that I'm going to make right decisions? We're so caught up in just making the next decision that we rarely stop to think. Now, of course, what dictates the good decision, the right decision? Well, really it comes down to what the end point is. What's the purpose? What's the meaning to your life that would help you understand whether a decision that you make is right or not? Let me give you an example. Uh, imagine you're driving. This is a, a very easy one to show examples of decision-making. And uh, you, you come to one of those big roundabouts, five different ways. You, you can choose one of five options. And you turn to the person next to you. This is the old days before GPS. And you say to them, all right, which one am I taking? One, two, three, four, or five? And they look at you and they say, well, where are we going? And you say, oh, I don't know. And they say, well, you might as well take three then. doesn't matter. If you don't know where we're going, then pick whatever you want. Just make the next decision. There's no right, there's no wrong. If you don't know what the end point, what the purpose, what the meaning, what the goal is, it's pretty hard to make the right decisions along the way. What's the meaning of life? 42, all right, okay, we got that out of the way. For all of you who are thinking it, Little Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference there. Now, let's move right along. What is the purpose of your life? Because without knowing what that is, you will always only make the next step rather than what is the good or the right step. It's big stuff. I mean, it's the kind of thing that we don't often stop to think about. What's the purpose of your life? But if we're not going to do it at church, then where are we going to do it? What would you say? I mean, right now, right here, I get you somehow in a couple of sentences to summarise what is the purpose of your life? What is that end point? What is that goal that you are driving towards that shapes the decisions of the day to day? I'll give you a moment to think. See, some of us might well have an answer. You, you, you might be able to say, oh, well, David, I uh, thought about it. I wrote my little life motto. I have it laid out. Here's the flowchart. Let me present it to you, right? Some of us might have that. For the majority of us, if we're honest, we probably haven't. 
We're too busy. We just do the next rather than stopping to think about the good. What is the meaning of life? It's a big question. Now, of course, it begs the question, is there one? Now, you might be here today, you might be somebody who doesn't believe in God. And if that's you, I think this is the best place you could be. Even if you don't believe in God, a church is a great place to be, because I hope God will convince you otherwise. But for you, life might have no meaning, right? The material world is all there is, just a series of one event after the other, random, chaotic, no purpose, no meaning. You, you might as well eat, drink and be merry, or you might as well die. It makes no difference in the grand scheme of things. Whereas the Bible is very clear that there is meaning and purpose and value to life for the very simple fact that we have been created. That is, there is a creator. There is somebody who has made all that is, including you and me, and he has made us for a reason. He has given us the purpose. It makes sense. The person who makes the thing gets to dictate what was it made for? What are the circumstances surrounding the creation of that thing? And let me give you an illustration. Have you ever seen one of these before? I brought one with me. Here you go. You ever seen one of these before? Anyone knows what these are? Ah, oh, very good. You're either a child or you have children in your life, right? And if you're a teacher, you've probably confiscated bagfuls of them by now. Now, imagine you didn't know what... Yeah, 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 you know what I'm talking about, right? You're walking down the street and you see one of these on the ground and you pick it up and you think, wow, what an amazing creation. I mean, the better ones of these have got bearings in all of the little different holes and really cool bearings in the middle, right? They just go forever. And you think, what an amazing thing. I wonder what this could be for. And you start to imagine all the possibilities, right? You could could put rods through each of the bearing sets and create a really cool off-road vehicle that could kind of go upstairs maybe. And you're like, oh, wow, what a clever person to think of that, right? But of course that's not what it's for. The person who made it made it so that people like me have something to fidget with. And we can just do this all day long, right, and annoy everybody else. No end. And then you can kind of balance it and you can play with it and it's like, yeah, how exciting. Right, I'm going to chuck it away now. Right, that's, it is a created object that has been given a purpose. The Bible is very clear that humanity has been created and, and will be judged. That is, the purpose that we have been given is one that we will be held accountable to. Did we achieve that which the Creator made us for? Now today, we're going to see a picture of heaven. We're going to see a picture of, well, it's not the end necessarily. It is a reality that already exists. And it's going to show us the end point of each one of our lives. It was such a helpful talk from James. It's going to show us that thing that we're headed towards, not just because that's what we will be then, but because it's what we need to begin to be now. Now, you you ever thought about heaven? I mean, in, in classic culture... Heaven seems to be the place where we all get to do the thing that we enjoy doing the most, right? That, that, um, uh, what's the song? If I, if I die before I wake, at least in heaven I can skate. Thank you, James. We just learned something about you, right? If, if I die before I wake, at least in heaven I can skate, he says. Heaven is a half pipe. Really? Well, yeah, because that's what I enjoy doing, thinks the author of that song. I like skating, so surely heaven is going to be about skating. I don't know if you've thought of heaven that way. It's going to be the thing that you like doing the most. It's, it's going to be an endless trout lake but you can just oh bite it's going to be the non-stop wave it's going to be the traveling it's going to be the food i mean whatever it is really is that what heaven's going to be like well let's have a look john shows us 
what heaven will be like. Now we're going to read through most of Revelation 4 and 5 again, so you, you will find it helpful. Have your Bible open as we go along. Right After this I looked, John says in chapter 4 verse 1, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Right, let me show you what's going to happen. This is now what's going to happen. This is what's happening next. And he goes in the spirit into the spirit world. It's not a, a mystical realm. It's just the next world. This is the world of the flesh. The next one is the world of spirit. And as he goes in, he sees a throne. And he sees someone sitting on the throne. Now, this is perhaps obvious, right? God sitting on his throne. We might be tempted to just ignore it and skip over it, but don't ignore it. God is sitting on his throne. There's the first reality of heaven that we need to know and understand. There is a God, and he is a God who rules. He's not distant. He's not uninterested. He's not far removed and cut off. He, no, he sits on the throne. And John, as he gazes upon this scene, sees what is really a very confusing drama unfold. It's confusing only in as much as it's full of these images, they're kind of strange images, that have echoes of the Old Testament. You could go and read the early chapters of Ezekiel, the early chapters of Isaiah, and you would see creatures that are kind of a little bit like these, but not quite the same. This is what John sees. He sees two things in particular that get special treatment. He sees the creatures and he sees the elders. Now let's talk about the creatures first for a moment. Jump down to verse 6. Before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Four creatures. Now look, we could spend a long time trying to nitpick through all the details of them all. I mean, there's the, the four creatures, someone's pointed out, perhaps representative of the creatures of earth. There's the, the greatest of the wild animals in the lion, the greatest of the domesticated animals in the ox, the greatest of the birds in the eagle, the greatest of them all in man. There's four of them. The number four will often represent the earth. Think of the, the four corners or the four winds. Or... But don't get too caught up in who these creatures are. I mean, they're beings of immense power and glory in their own right. But look more importantly at what it is that they do. Again, second half of verse 8, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to the one who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. See, these creatures, these beings, have been made for the specific purpose of day and night, ceaselessly praising God, praising him for his holiness, his character, his splendor, praising him for his power, the Lord God Almighty, praising him for his permanence, He's ever been and he always will. And so he is worthy. They give him great glory and honour 
and thanks. It makes me think of ticker tape parades. You ever been to a, a parade? The, the sort where you are, you are, you are praising someone? You, you often see it after the football grand final. I, I've, I've only ever, I haven't been there, but I kind of saw the, the end of the AFL where the, the, the winning team goes back to their hometown and they, they get a parade. Like pe- people will be, hey, hooray, look at you guys go, right? And, and everyone's there and they're there to praise them for they are worthy of praise. You are powerful. You are mighty. You are victorious. Yeah, go you. You're amazing. These beings, full of their glory, representative of the entire earth, before the Lord God Almighty, day after day, praising him. But it's not just the creatures, the elders are there as well. Come back to verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Seated on them were 24 elders, or you could only say 24 kings. They're sitting on thrones, they have crowns. They were dressed in white, they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now again, don't get too caught up in the who. Is it the 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles? I don't know. Probably not. Is it the 24 priests in the Aaronic line? Ah, Well, the, the point isn't who they are. The point is what they are doing. These elders who themselves are holy, they are clothed in white, who themselves are powerful, seated on thrones with crowns, but perhaps the, all the powers of the earth represented here. And what is it that they do? Come down to verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they created and have their being. It, it, it's, a, it's a phenomenal, fantastical scene. Not fantastical in that it's imaginary, but in its grandeur and splendor. As the four living creatures fall down in worship and the 24 elders behind them fall down before God and lay their crowns before him and say, You are worthy. You are worthy for you created all things. Everything that exists, exists because of God. I like making things. I quite enjoy the process of taking raw materials and turning them into something, in my case, usually something functional rather than necessarily beautiful. But just the process of arriving at this end product is great. But I am not a creator. I don't don't bring into being that which I make. At best, I take things and turn them into other things. You know, you take a tree, you cut it down, you turn it into some timber. You join two bits of timber together by various means and then you put some stuff on it that you think looks pretty. Like that, that's, I'm not creating anything. Whereas the Lord God Almighty, do you remember? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do it? He spoke. He just spoke and creation came into being. And so he is worthy. And so let's talk about worship for a moment. You see, it is caught up in this worship of the creatures and the elders. Our very existence is dependent upon the same one. And so he is worthy of our worship and our praise. Do you want to know the meaning of life? Do you want to know the purpose for which you were created? that you, like those creatures and those elders, would fall down and praise God. That's, that's it. Do 
Now, mind you, it's kind of why people prefer it to be an accident. It's why there are lots of atheists, because if that is the meaning of life, is that we praise and worship the one who made us, we don't want to. I don't want to worship him. I prefer there to not be a God, because I don't want to be held accountable for whether I have praised that God and worshipped him with my life or not. No, Revelation 4 is very clear. In fact, you could have just Revelation 4 and none of the rest of the Bible and you would get an accurate picture of God and us. You could understand that we have been made that we might praise him. Does it feel a bit like a letdown? That's that's the meaning of life. That's that's the purpose of who I am and, and... I wanted something a bit more, ah, a, bit, a bit more about me, maybe. <laughs> like, like my, my where, where? And I think we only feel that because, really, at our hearts, we're often still idolaters, aren't we? We haven't yet learned to treasure God above all else. We haven't seen God in the way that they saw God. We haven't yet had him unveiled before us in his glory and majesty that all we could do is fall before him and say, oh, you are worthy. The Presbyterians, uh, I think, got it right at this point. Any closet Presbyterians among us? Uh, anyone remember what the, uh, the, 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 the catechism, right, within their kind of formulaic ways of teaching stuff? They have a question, what is the chief end of man? Uh, we have at least one closet Presbyterian among us. Uh, Joe! What is the chief end of man? Very good, thank you. Uh, Closet Presbyterian, just pointing it out. Uh, <clears throat> card carrying one, I do believe. Uh, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the chief end of man. That's why we're here. And you know, that could have been it. Revelation could have finished there, the Bible could have finished there, and we would have been okay. But something happens next. Chapter 5 and verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals and you're left hanging. All right, now we've got to know what's in that. I mean, that sounds cool. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And then we get one of those seriously weird verses. You thought the rest was weird. I think this is the weird bit. Verse 4, I wept. John just starts blubbering. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. I don't, I don't know what it is that he could see that we can't. There's something about this scene that just makes him break down and lose it. What do you mean no one is worthy to open the scroll? Now, maybe he's upset because no one's worthy. Maybe he's like, surely in the history of humanity, you can find one person who's, I mean, come on, guys. Maybe he's upset that it wasn't him. I don't know. Or maybe he just had such a hunger to know what God's word was. I mean, here is a scroll in God's hand, seven seals, perfectly sealed, written on both sides, ready to declare the counsel of God. Maybe he's just upset because he really, really, really wanted to know what does God have in store? Either way, verse 5, something good happens. One of the elders said to me, don't weep. See the lion." Of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able 
to open the scroll and it's seven seals. You're like, yes! Here comes the king, right? I mean, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is what it sounds like. You're, you're expecting this massive dude, lightsaber in one hand. And it's like, I'm here, right? Ready to go. John turns in verse 6. And I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. <laughs> it's not quite what you expect, was it? As John, Joe so helpfully pointed out last week, right? You, so often in Revelation... You hear, John hears something behind him and it sets up an expectation. Here is the mighty one, the conquering one, the saviour, the messiah. And he turns and he sees not just a lamb, but a dead one. Slain. There's the lamb. Let me illustrate it for you if I can. Uh, who has a, a fa- favourite rugby league team? Let's just talk about their, their, their mascots for a moment, their animals. Right? You, you tell, me, tell me your favourite lo- rugby league team. The Tigers. The Tigers. Very good, right? You think of the mascot of the Tigers. Rawr, big, scary, going to get you. My son loves it. He walks around the house all day. Rawr, not because he's a Tigers fan, he just likes Tigers. Right, Tigers. Yeah, what else? The Knights, right, coming at you. I've got my visor down and going to stab you with my big jousting stick. You tell him you're dreaming, right? What else? Roosters, yeah, they're a bit wussy. Let's talk about the roosters, all right? Dragons, oh, big, fire-breathing, flying. Uh, sharks, someone said today, right? Going to get you, chomp, chomp, chomp. Right, I mean, even the bulldogs, I mean, come on, they're a bit little, but they're tenacious, right? They're... That's what you're expecting to see when you turn. And what do you see? The rabbitos. <laughs> Who thought that a little bunny? How are we going to get you? Yeah, go the bunnies! Hooray! Right, like, what? There is the lamb who was slain. But have a bit of a closer look at that lamb. I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been saying, standing in the centre of the throne. God's throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. It's a lamb with a twist. I mean, he's got the, the perfect power of God himself. He has God's own spirit, as it was described in the previous chapters. Seated on God's throne. And look what happens as he takes the, the scroll, verse 8. When he had taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb. Blasphemy. Blasphemy has just happened in heaven. Here were creatures created to worship God. Day and night, that's all they do. They fall down before God and worship. And here they turn and worship the Lamb. Well, it's blasphemy only if that lamb is not God himself. Jesus, the slain lamb. And as the creature, as the creatures and the elders fall down, we keep reading in end of verse 8, each one had a harp, they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Is that a great word? They sang a new song. Something has changed in heaven. I mean, for, for all eternity past... They sang the one song over and over and over 
and over again. Like the worst earworm you could ever imagine, right? But this was a good one. They never got sick of it. God was worthy of that one song. And suddenly something changed such that in heaven there's a new song. And look at what this song is, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels, thousands and thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise and i heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever amen and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped wow i mean what an incredible sight you see you and me have a double bond to god we were created by him so we are his that in itself ought to be enough but he has done something else In the death of Jesus, he has redeemed us, repurchased us, ransomed to be his own, to be his people. It took God in the flesh. God the Son entered into the world crucified. And so Jesus is worthy, not because he's powerful, although he is, not because he's perfect, although he is, but because he was slain to purchase a people for God to be a kingdom and to be priests. It's a glimpse into heaven that shows us a reality that was present for John and a reality that is still present today. God and his lamb seated on the throne with all that is, all that was and all that will be, worshipping him. His people joined together with a great throng, a great multitude, declaring his praises because we see him as worthy of them, because we see the Lamb as worthy of praise. It, it, it makes a mockery, if I'll be honest, of our own little pictures of heaven. Like, yes, when I go to heaven, I get to have fun. Really? Really, that's going to be heaven? When we come to heaven face to face with this glorious almighty one, we will want nothing else than to fall before him. And of course, if that's the purpose of life then, it starts now. It's not something that will happen in a moment later. It is the purpose of life today. I came across a a quote by one of these motivational speakers. I'm going to share it with you and then I'm going to tell you why it's rubbish. And then I'll tell you the better version, the kind of the Christian version, right? Uh, Anyone ever heard of Alan Cohen? Apparently he's, he's, yeah, a couple of you nodded. Well, all right, good stuff. Uh, right, here's, here's the quote I came across. He says, don't postpone joy until after you've learned your lessons. Joy is about the lessons. Right, don't postpone joy until after you've learned your lessons. Joy is about the lessons. It's one of those nice, you know, put it on a cat poster, stick it on your wall, kind of doesn't really mean anything, but gee, it sounds nice kind of sayings. Let me Christianize it for you a little bit better instead. Don't postpone the worship of God until you have eternal life. Life 
is about worship. Don't think that when heaven arrives, then we will worship. That's the time for worshipping God. No, it begins today. Are you Christian? Have you been purchased by the blood of the Lamb? Have you been created by the one who is almighty? Then your life is about his worship, his praise, his glory. Colossians 3, 1 to 4, you can go and read that later. Set your minds on things that are above. There's the meaning of life, but it leaves us with a problem. I'll finish with this. It leaves us with a problem. What's worship? I mean, if if we're saying that the point of life is to worship, what, what, what does that even mean? What, what does that look like? How do, I, how do I do that? Now, there's inevitably one picture in the Bible that is consistently and all the time connected to worship. I want to show you that picture. Um, I, I, I could have showed it to you on the screen, but I, I want to demonstrate it for you instead. See, there's one thing that always goes hand in hand with the worship of God in the Bible. And it's this. Does it feel uncomfortable? I'll be honest, it feels a little bit uncomfortable for me. It, it, it's a humiliating sensation to turn to someone else and lay yourself down before them. I mean, that's the Bible, right? They bow down and worship. They place all that they are in abject service of the one before them. Now I'm not saying that as you walk around in life every three steps you've got to stop and kneel. I'm not saying that. But what would it look like for your life to be lived that way? With all that you are and all that you have, with every action and thought and decision, with all of your mind and all of your spirit and all of your everything, lived in that position before your God to worship who he is and what he has done. What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture you have shown us through John of the reality that we live. Yours by creation, yours by redemption. Known to you and knowing you, made to worship. Fill us with yourself. That we might see you as the elders, as the creatures saw you. That we might see the lamb as they saw. Worthy, worthy. Worthy to receive glory and honour and praise. Fill us with yourself that we might live lives of worship every moment of every day. Bowed before you to honour you. Amen.